Well, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles with me uh, once again this morning to the book of Acts. If you don't have a copy, again, there are Bibles on the back table, or the passage for this morning is printed in the insert uh, that you find in your bulletin. To those of you who are visiting this morning, once again, welcome. We're glad that you're here with us. Uh, We have been studying this book of the Bible for what has been now, I guess, the last several months, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and it has not just been giving us a glimpse of what the church of Jesus was like in the first century, but it has been instructing us as a church here and now about who we are to be, about what we are called to be about. And we've made it as far as chapter 13, which is where we find ourselves This morning, chapter 13, I remind you, those of you who were here last week, remember that chapter 13 marks a significant shift in the book of Acts, because it's here in this chapter, we'll reread what we read last week, but it's here in this chapter that the church of Jesus, spearheaded by the work of Paul and Barnabas from the church at Antioch, begins its worldwide mission of spreading this good news of what Jesus has done for mankind. And last week, we just scratched the surface of this account, but what I wanted to get us to think about was the fact that God calls us to be what? Not a rhetorical question. What? What kind of a church? A missionary church. A missionary church, that is one that amidst all, all the other good things that we might do in our day and age, one thing that we are called to do, the central thing we are called to do, is to win people to Christ and to build them up in Him. We talked about how that begins when we be, begin to recognize and reflect God's heart for the nations. And we strive to become more healthy and strong and mature for the purpose of not being healthy and strong and mature, but for the purpose of sending even those who might be our best. We send them that they might go and spread the good news. And so this morning we return to where we were last week and we pick up that same theme of a missionary church. And I want to read just, I I had, again, I had huge aspirations of plowing through this whole chapter this week. No, it's not going to happen. So we're going to stop at verse 12, uh, which is indeed the, the text you find in your insert. Listen as I read Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene. Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there, they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. 
And they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Paul, excuse me, Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. And he said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, last week I began with a question. It's a question that still pertains to this week as we open up Acts chapter 13 again. And the question was, what do you want to be when you grow up? And of course, I wasn't simply talking about your life, you kids who are thinking about what you want to be when you grow up, or you in midlife crisis thinking about what you want to be when you grow up. No, I wanted to apply it to our life together as a church and encourage us to move towards the strength and the maturity that we see here in the book of Acts, here in the church at Antioch, in this small little sliver, this small little glimpse of this church that we get. Now, asking the question naturally implied the answer. Namely, that you want to grow up. That that's something you want. But if we think about growing up, we've got to think about the fact that growing up is hard. i got some kids in my house that really want to grow up. But one of the issues is that you longed for the days when you could eat what you wanted for dinner until you realized that you have to fix that dinner every night. You long to be able to drive where you want to go in your car until you begin to calculate how much gas and insurance and maintenance of that car is going to take from the paycheck at the job that you don't have yet. You long to get out of the craziness of a house full of siblings until you sit alone in an apartment on a Friday night with no company. See, there is a part of us that doesn't want to grow up because in part we don't want the responsibility that comes with growing up. We'd rather things be comfortable. We want things to be predictable. Let's just keep things the way they've always been. And it's the same with the church, isn't it? Being a missionary church or thinking about being a missionary church is hard. It's something that we're going to have to strive for. It's something that's going to take effort. It means change. 
It might mean upheaval. It might mean sorrow. And yet amidst all the mights, amidst all the difficulty, there is joy. There's joy in bringing the gospel to people in places that are lost without it. There's joy in being obedient to Christ's call on our lives as a church, as a corporate body. There's joy in seeing his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so I'm going to challenge us once again this morning about being a missionary Church, I want us to think hard about how God's Word might change us and shape us as a church. But as we do that, we can't forget the joy that this will bring amidst the difficulty that it might be. And of course, we can't forget the one who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but gave himself, made himself nothing and took the form of a servant and humbled himself to the point of death. He is worthy. And so there's just two truths that I want us to wrestle with this morning as we look at these two, uh, as we look at this passage, verses 1 through 12 of Acts chapter 13. And the first one is this. A missionary church has a sense of urgency. A missionary church has a sense of urgency. Urgency. Now, I don't think in talking to modern day Americans that I need to convince you to be urgent people. No, you are urgent people. The problem is that we are so easily urgent about all the wrong things. In the 1960s, there was a little booklet entitled The Tyranny of the Urgent written by Charles Hummel. It became a business classic in which he argued that there's this constant tension between what's important and what's urgent, and the urgent always wins. The urgent always seems to push out the important. I've never read that booklet, but I know that in large measure, as I think about my own life from week to week, that's true. There is a sense in which the urgent always wins and beats out the important. But the Church of Antioch, I think, reminds us that that tension doesn't need to always exist. For the church, the most important thing is also the most urgent thing. The problem is remembering that and thinking about that and keeping that ever before us. As we jump back into Acts chapter 13, we're still kind of stuck in the first three verses where we were last week. But I want to make the point, and I think it's worth noting, that the church is doing something important for their mission. Something that we never do as a church. They're fasting. They're fasting. Now, now fasting is not the main point of this passage. And I'm not going to pretend like it is. But it seems to me that in speaking... Dr. Luke, who wrote this account, in speaking twice about the fact that this church fasted over what they were about to do, it seems to me that it conveys something important about their life together, and it conveys a certain urgency about what they were doing. Now, fasting is a practice that we find 
throughout the scriptures. It's something that God's people frequently have engaged in. Again, not for health reasons. I'm not talking about a health fast. I'm talking about a a spiritual fast, a religious fast. If we look through the pages of scripture, we find that there's fasting in the midst of grief. There's fasting to express sorrow over sin. There's fasting for protection. There's fasting to express devotion to God. And we We see it in the lives of all kinds of Old Testament saints. David, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, the Ninevites, the Israelites, Jesus himself, and we could go on and on and on. And in all these instances in Scripture, and in what we find here this morning in Acts chapter 13, the point of fasting, the accompaniment of fasting, is what? It's prayer. What fasting does, in a sense, is enlarge our offerings, as I heard one writer write. It sharpens the edge of our cries. Now, it's not that fasting causes God to hear us better, but it's that fasting causes us to pray better and for us to hear better. So the church at Antioch, it senses this urgency to not just pray for what it's about to do, but to to fast. And in doing so, I think they remind us of something that was a regular and important part of New Testament church life. Something that in our modern church, we have, to my own shame, we have neglected. In Matthew 6, Jesus' words to his followers about fasting, he says, Not, he says, he doesn't say if you fast. What does he say? When you fast. And if you think, well, that was just for the first century, that was just on the heels of the Old Testament where fasting was a part of Jewish life, then consider his words earlier in that passage when he says in verse 2, when you give to the needy. What was that? Maybe that was the Old Testament church. Or verse 5, when you pray. No, it's presumed that we're going to fast. It's presumed that without the bridegroom here with us, we will long for him. We will long for his return with fasts. John Calvin, for those of you who need a nice reformed quote, John Calvin says, whenever men are to pray to God concerning any great matter, it would be expedient to appoint fasting along with prayer. Brothers and sisters, our call in the church as a missionary church is one of urgency. And it's one of urgency that is not always, but can be and should be always expressed through fasting. And so we need to ask ourselves these questions, these collective questions as a church. Are we living for something more than this world alone can offer? Are we hungry to be used by the Lord? Are we hungry not for food, but for His leading, for His specific leading for this church in our time and place, in our life together, here in this slice of the world? If so, 
If we are desiring those things, then there seems to be biblical precedent for us to express that hunger of our hearts through hunger in our bodies, accompanied by prayer. Now, we're entering an entirely, not, not an entirely, well, but we're entering a new phase of life together. And it seems to me it's a, it's a good opportunity for us to create new patterns. And frankly, as I, I've been thinking about this passage and wrestling with God's Word, I want fasting to be one of those patterns. One of those things that we think about and and teach more about and talk about and practice. Even as we gather on our monthly Sunday evening gatherings for a time of prayer. I've begun a discussion already with our elders to think through how can we be a church that's urgent about its mission. And that expresses that urgency even in the way Antioch does. As they send out Paul and Barnabas. As we return to our text this morning, I think bound up in that prayer and fasting of the book of Antioch, uh, the church at Antioch, is the answer and the clear direction that they receive. I acknowledge that there is some mystery here. We don't know precisely how the Holy Spirit speaks to the church. We don't know how He says the things that He says here in Acts chapter 13. But we know that He says them. In a clear way, we know that they were ready to hear. They were ready to listen. That there was a quiet, urgent focus that drowned out the noise of the world so that they could hear the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, a missionary church has that kind of urgent focus. It recognizes that the gospel of Jesus is too good to keep to ourselves. It recognizes and remembers that there is a world that's lost and in need of Christ. That there is a hell that awaits those who reject Him. It pleads to hear. It pleads to be heard. That's the first thing I want us to see this morning as we continue to think about the church being a missionary church. A missionary church has a sense of urgency. Well, there's this second truth that I want us to think about for a moment, and it's this. A missionary church knows that this is God's work. A missionary church knows that this is God's work. Don't misunderstand or leave this place thinking that your hope is in your urgency or that our hope is in our plan or even that our hope is in our fasting. No, our hope is in God alone and in His grace. You see, if we stopped the sermon right there, there might be despair. I mean, you know, Nate, you you have told us, if we go back to last week, you've told us that we need to Reflect His heart. We need to be strong in order that we might send. We need to have a sense of urgency. And you've overwhelmed me and you've created a little bit of panic in me about what we're supposed to be as a church. But I tell you this morning that urgency is not the same as panic. 
Because what we can't miss in Acts chapter 13, threaded throughout this account, is the simple truth that ultimately, this is not our work. This missionary endeavor is not our work. Yes, we are responsible to be the church that God calls us to be. But Luke not only reminds us here that God is sovereign, not only that His Spirit is with His church, but that the proclamation of the Gospel is founded on real authority. The authority of the risen and exalted Christ. We talked last week about the church counterintuitively sending off its its A team. Right? Instead of the B team, they sent the A team. Paul and Barnabas. But when we read this passage, it wasn't their decision to send Paul and Barnabas. The call of Paul and Barnabas to Cyprus is clearly revealed as God's call, as God's sovereign design. Yes, they were commissioned by the church, but they were directed by the Holy Spirit. And the call of these two men leads them to the island of Cyprus, this island in the middle of the Mediterranean. They had to get on a boat to get there, travel 130 miles across the water. And then once on the island, Paul and Barnabas essentially begin what is a preaching tour of the island of Cyprus. And from the first city, Seleucia, to the last city of Paphos, the Lord reminds them that this is His work. And how does He do that? Well, we've already talked about the call of Paul and Barnabas. But let me encourage you with what the Lord does along the way. I mean, just look at the divine appointments that God gives Saul and Barnabas. How does Paul, how does Paul get to preach in the synagogues? There were, there were Jews, obviously, on Cyprus. Jews who had set up synagogues to hear God's Word. When that Word, as we'll see next week, when that Word was read... They often asked if anyone wanted to give a word uh, of encouragement, of explanation. Jesus did that himself. How does Paul do that? Well, Paul does that because he has the credentials to speak. Even in the Jewish synagogue, he was trained under the renowned teacher Gamaliel, and he is now saved by Jesus. And that training gives him a platform to speak. And he did it in Salamis, he did it Or he'll do it again next week as we open up the rest of the chapter and he'll do it in Pisidian Antioch. You see, God had paved the way for these men. This is his work. He's giving them the opportunity as they pray, as they fast urgently that his kingdom would come. And it's not just the synagogue preaching along the way. I'm sure there's much more preaching that happened than what we hear here in Acts chapter 13. But then they arrive, and there is this proconsul, this highest-ranking government official on the island of Cyprus. Think not mayor of a town. Think governor of the island. He's a big cheese. And what does he do? He summons Paul and Barnabas. He wants to hear from them. Their reputation has preceded them, or should we say, the Spirit of God has preceded them and is already at work. This is God's work. And then we come to a familiar scene, one that we've seen, as I told you, Luke returns to these 
common themes in the book of Acts, and one of the common themes in the book of Acts is opposition. Opposition to the church of Jesus, opposition to the gospel going forth. And here we come to a Jewish magician and a false prophet by the name of Bar-Jesus. Now we don't know Jesus was a common name in that day. We don't know if Bar means son of. So son, this was the son of Jesus. We don't know if that was a real father by the name of Jesus or if it was kind of a, a play on words concerning what had happened in that world during that time. We don't know the answer to that, but Paul and Barnabas come into town and, and Bar-Jesus knows this is not going to be good for his business. This is not going to be good. He's got the ear of the proconsul. And suddenly these men are on the scene. And so we are not exactly sure how, but Bar-Jesus seeks to turn the proconsul away from seeking to learn more of this faith, for seeking to learn more about who Jesus is. And what does Luke show us once again? What does Luke remind us of? That the gospel will not be stopped. That this is God's work. And as Paul says in his direct rebuke to bar Jesus, the straight paths of the Lord will not be made crooked. It's kind, of a, it's kind of a strange phrase to our ears that Paul says. It's not something you would rebuke someone with normally. And I don't know about you, these are, those of you who know the Scriptures, you, you, you hear that phrase in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, a, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our, for our God. And so what are these straight paths that Paul is talking about. The straight paths is God's work. It's God's path for the gospel that he's charted out and will not stop and will not be diverted. And so instead of bar Jesus derailing Paul's and God's intentions there on the island of Cyprus, there with the proconsul, God rebukes him through Paul. And he does it in, in a couple different ways, a couple ironic ways, I think. First of all, in a strange, almost mocking rebuke, the Apostle Paul says, you're no, you're no son of Jesus. You're a son of the devil. Get out of his way. Get out of Jesus' way. And then in an ironic show of power in the Gospel, Bar-Jesus is blinded by the words of a fellow opposer of the Gospel who was himself blinded by God for the purpose of his Gospel going forth. You see the irony in, in God's work here on the island of Cyprus. Let there be no doubt, Luke reminds us, this is God's work. Yes, you need to reflect the, God's heart for the nations. Yes, you need to be strong in order to serve, in order to have right doctrine. Yes, you need to be urgent. But it's not all, it's not all up to you. This is God's work. Seek His face. Trust Him to do what He's going 
to do. You see, this should not create in us some kind of laziness or complacency about what we are doing. No, this creates in us a humility and a dependence and a confidence in the fact that we, our proclamation, the gospel will go forth. And I think that's what God's word does in us this morning. It reminds us of a needed urgency that creates passion, that creates focus, and an equally needed dependency that creates in us humility and confidence. I, I for one, I want to grow up in that. And I want us as a church to grow up in that. May God give us His grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for Your servants who have gone before us to proclaim the good news of Jesus. We thank You for the promise of Your Spirit which goes before us and is in us as we proclaim as a church and as individuals what You have done. Give us an urgency for this call. Give us an urgency for Your work. As we prayed earlier, turn our eyes away from worthless things and fix our gaze upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That we might live for Him. That we might run the race, the straight paths that You have set before us with the host of saints cheering us on, with Jesus waiting for us at the finish line. All for the glory of Your name. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.